Galatians chapter number four is where I'd like to call your attention to this morning. It's a joy to be in the service. I appreciate the opportunity to come and be in the meeting. I've been helped by the Word of God already this morning. Both messages have spoke to my heart. I was thinking as Brother Fletcher opened the book of Job chapter 36 to us. I just finished reading a couple days ago through the book of Job. And uh, when he called chapter 36, Elihu came to my mind. I said, that's Elihu speaking. And Elihu said at the beginning of his discourse, he said, I'm young and you're very old. But by the end of it, you want to go back and tell Elihu, you didn't have to tell us that, that you were young. Because of two things. Number one, he seems to know everything. And number two, he don't know when to shut up. Six chapters of lecturing Job. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that word this morning. And I'm grateful to be in your fellowship this morning and appreciate Brother Kevin Merritt. I met Brother Kevin a few years ago and was instantly drawn to his kindness. I, I told my wife, I don't know if I've ever met a kinder, more gentleman preacher than Brother Kevin Merritt. Made his acquaintance and then went our separate ways as we do. And one of my real passions in life, y'all don't throw a songbook at me, but one of my real passions in life is running beagles. I love beagle dogs. I think about them a lot. A good bit. And I was riding by here on this very highway about two years ago going right down the road here to run dogs at a competition. And lo and behold, there was the Charity Baptist Church with Pastor Kevin Merritt. And I've rode by this place several times between then and now. And to be here this morning is a real honor and a privilege. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. The book of Galatians chapter number 4, the last time some of us were in meeting together, I was in Galatians 3. And now I'm in Galatians 4. So maybe if we meet together next year, I'll be in 5 or 6, somewhere like that. Verse number 8 is where I want to call your attention. The Apostle Paul says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow in your divine presence. We're grateful for the privilege to pray. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to once again come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The time of need, Lord, that we find ourselves in this morning is the need of the unction and the filling of the Spirit of God in order to preach your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inspired by God, breathed out by God. It's profitable for 
doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and with it in my hands I am perfectly furnished, thoroughly furnished, to do the work, the task that lays before me. Help me to say none other things than what this text says to us today. Speak to our hearts from your word. Use me to be a blessing to your people. And all that you're pleased to do in us and through us and for us, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you from those first five words of verse number 11, where the Apostle Paul tells these Galatian believers, this is a little bit different letter in character and in nature than the other letters that Paul writes in that it's not addressed to just one congregation, but it's addressed to a region, churches in a particular region. He's said some pretty upfront things with them. I have noted as I've preached through this letter that of all of the inspired writings that we have on record from the Apostle Paul, none, and probably even of all the other New Testament writers, save the Lord Jesus in a couple of instances, Paul is probably on the offense more in this particular letter than in any other letter. He wields effectively the sword of the Spirit with a sharp edge in this letter more than any other place. And the reason that he does is because of the subject matter that's being dealt with in the book of Galatians. There's not issues like what Paul has to deal with in 1 Corinthians. We are as a church together reading through 1 Corinthians in our private devotion time. And all of those issues that Paul has to deal with in the church of Corinth the church celebrating sin that should be dealt with, the church abusing spiritual gifts, the church being confused about the institution of marriage in the New Testament church. Those are issues that definitely needed Holy Spirit direction and inspired guidance to be dealt with, but they're not on the same plateau, as it were, with the issue that's being dealt with in the letter to the churches of Galatia. What's at stake, what's at heart in this letter and the issue that is dominating and defining the churches of this region of Galatia is nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the purity of it, the presentation of it. What saves us, or rather, I guess I should say, who saves us? fundamental issue comes down to either Christ secured salvation himself for those who believe in him by faith alone or he merely opened the door to salvation. He merely gave us an entrance into eternal life but we carry it on and ratify it ourselves. That's what the false teachers were teaching in the churches of Galatia. Enter into the Christian life as it were through the cross and death of Jesus Christ, but carry it on through adherence. Persevere, if you'll have it, in the works of the flesh through the law, namely circumcision and dietary laws and calendar observances, as we read in this text. Paul could not abide. I've often said it like this. There's a lot of doctrines, several doctrines, brethren, with which we can give liberty There's variance in how we can interpret some things. Not because the scripture is not clear. We're committed to the 
perspicuity of Scripture. We're committed to the clarity of Scripture. There's not a problem with what the Scripture speaks when it speaks on a certain issue. But the problem is with you and me. We're dull in understanding. And often we just can't put two and two together. But when it comes to this matter of the gospel, there is no liberty. There is no variance. There can be no fellowship outside of those who declare staunchly the gospel of the grace of God. And our acceptance of it through faith, our coming into justification by faith. So in writing this letter and dealing with these issues, Paul uses several sharp terminology, several sharp words. He begins in verse or chapter number 1 of verse number 6. He says that I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. I'm amazed that it happened so quickly. Apostasy usually is a slow fade. It's a slow drip. Usually little by little, various influences come into folks' lives and they eventually go off into apostasy. Paul said, I was no sooner out of town and you were running after another gospel. I'm amazed by that. He comes to chapter number 3 and calls them foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth crucified among you? Later on in chapter number 4, he's going to say in verse number 20, I stand in doubt of you. I wished I were there with you Presently, if I were, I would change my voice so you could understand me clearly. I stand, I am amazed by you. I, I am dumbfounded by you, is what Paul says. In chapter number five, he will ask them the question, who did hinder you? You did run well, but who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? In verse number 11 of our text this morning, he gives another sharp rebuke. Perhaps his sharpest. He says to these Galatian believers, who he loves. It's evident as you read this letter, he loves these believers. He would not give them this sharp rebuke, this piercing truth, if he did not love them. He was convinced of the gospel that he had preached to them. In fact, he told them, if someone else comes unto you, if we come back to you and preach any other gospel than what you were preached to at the first, let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. Let them be condemned. He said this was not only the gospel that was preached to you, but this is the gospel that you received. You believed it. In chapter number 3, he tells them, how did you receive the Spirit? He's intimating that they had received the Spirit, but he wants them to review their experience and ask themselves the questions, how did you do it? Did you hear it? Did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith or by the works of the law? So with pastoral love and with pastoral concern, he says to this congregation in verse number 11, I am afraid of you. I am fearful for you is what Paul is saying. He is expressing, and this is what I want to leave with you this morning, he is expressing a minister's greatest fear. He is expressing a preacher of the gospel A man that has been consumed with the glory of God in the gospel. Now this is not every minister's greatest fear. 
Not everyone that stands in a pulpit across our country and across this world would share this concern for his flock. Some men are concerned with the financial well-being of their flock preeminently and as a priority. I'm concerned about that for my people as well. I worry about those things with them. I see couples that struggle with their finances and I pray with them and I help mentor them and help show them how to do a budget. Somebody said that was never in the job description when I trained to be a pastor. But if you love your people, you'll do what you can to help them. I have fears, as it were, for my people when it comes to their health, when it comes to their well-being. I remember what John said in 3 John. He said, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. John said, if I could have, he didn't use the word that uh, we would equate to determine because John knew that this was something that he couldn't determine for his people. This was not something that he could dictate for his people. This was not something that he could guarantee for his people. But he, as it were, he said, if I could have for you what I would wish, I would wish that you would prosper and be in good health even as thy soul prospereth. Not at the expense of the prosperity of your soul, but just as your soul is prospering in the gospel, so I wish that your physical health and financial well-being would prosper as well. We want those things for our people. But a man that has seen the glory of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a man that has seen truly what Christ accomplished for those who believe, a man that has seen what God through Jesus Christ has wrought, the salvation that He has brought, the gulf that He has spanned at Calvary, and the eternal life to which we have been saved. Our greatest fear is expressed by what Paul says here in verse number 11. I am more fearful not of you getting cancer, not of financial ruin. I am more fearful that I have bestowed labor upon you in vain. If I can just boil this down in Alabama vernacular, I'm afraid y'all ain't getting it. Or I'm afraid that you do see it. That you do understand it. And that you're drawn away after another gospel. I'm afraid of you. I'm fearful for you. Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. That phrase, labor in vain, comes from the Greek phrase, eke kekorpiaka. Eke kekorpiaka. And it literally means labor that is wearisome. Labor that is taxing. Labor that is burdensome. Labor to the point of exhaustion, which we know the Apostle Paul did. He not only labored in the Word, but he would labor with his own hands so that the Gospel would not be charged. So no one could point a finger at him and say, you're doing this for financial prosperity. You're doing this just to receive from us. Now Paul also taught that those that live of the Gospel or those that preach of the Gospel should live of the Gospel. He preached that a workman is worthy of his hire. Do not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Paul said that if a man labors in 
in the gospel that it's right for the people of God to take care of that preacher that labors in the gospel. But just so that no one, Paul would forfeit that liberty. There's many times in the New Testament in his writings, Brother Kevin, that Paul said, I have liberty to do this. I'm free to do this. All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. By the way, can I take just a little side road right here? One of the major cries in our day, I'm seeing it amongst our people, is this discovery, so-called, of Christian liberty. And I believe in Christian liberty, and I'm going to preach a little bit about it today. But Paul had liberty to do a great number of things that he did not do because he said it would offend a brother of weaker conscience. So he forfeited his liberty because he loved his brother more than he did his liberty. And instead of handing the people of God a bill a lot of times, he labored himself to the point of exhaustion. This labor, not only in the Word, but with his hands. Paul said that I'm afraid that it is in vain, without purpose, without success, and without effort. Now Paul knows at the judgment seat, if he's been faithful... If he maintains the course, as Brother Fletcher preached to us and encouraged us just a few moments ago. If he is faithful in the task and finishes the course, he knows, as he told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 58, he said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul knew that when he gave an account of his ministry at the judgment seat, if he had been faithful, that the Lord would reward him not for his success, but for his faithfulness in maintaining the gospel and building upon the foundation. He knew that he was building upon the foundation of Christ gold and silver and precious stones that would endure the fire of the Bema seat of the judgment seat. So there is a consolation to Paul's heart that his labor will be acknowledged and rewarded by the Lord. But what he is afraid is that the work that he will be rewarded for at the judgment seat is not taking hold in those to whom he is laboring and a among those whom he is laboring. He's afraid for them, not for himself. I think Paul expresses this fear that a minister that has truly seen the gospel, and like I said, this fear is only in those that know something of the glory of God in the gospel. Paul expresses three things about this great fear that I want to leave with you this morning. First of all, he said... I believe that a minister's greatest fear is that his labor will be in vain if the people do not understand the dynamics of their new relationship. As he preaches to the people, if he somehow cannot get them to accept, receive, grasp, whatever verb you want to associate with it, if he can't get them to understand the dynamics of their new relationship, then he's afraid for them. What is this new relationship? Well, verses 8 through 11, and you can see this grammatically, they serve as a conclusion. 
Verses 8 through 11 in the book of Galatians, chapter number 4, serves as a conclusion to a long argument that Paul has been making. It began in chapter number 3 where Paul is defending his message. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul declares his message several times. The central message that he declares is justification by faith. As he declares that message, he defends his ministry. He defends his ministry that it is of heavenly origin. He said that I was neither taught this gospel, neither did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me and was instructed in this gospel, but he was saved on the road to Damascus and immediately began to preach that Jesus was the Christ. After that, he went into Arabia, and three years later, he returned preaching the gospel. He said, my message and my ministry is of heavenly origin. My ministry was from the lips of the Lord Jesus. He called me himself to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was neither taught it. I did not learn it. But he defended his ministry that it was of heavenly origins. And then after he builds the authority that he has as an apostle, then he begins to defend this message of salvation by grace from the scriptures. And that's what he's been doing through chapter number 3. He looks at inspired scripture and redemptive history and proves how that this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is rooted in scripture. It goes back to Abraham. Before the law was ever given, before circumcision was ever instituted, Abraham believed God by faith and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Therefore, those who are of Abraham's seed are not those necessarily who have been circumcised, who are observing dietary laws and calendar restrictions. But those who are of Abraham's seed are those who have believed the promise by faith. Proves it from Scripture. And he proves that the law was given not as a means of salvation, but as he would say, as a schoolmaster as a tutor and a governor that was appointed to watch over the heir until the time on which the heir could receive the promise. Paul says that time has come. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Verse number four of chapter number four, to redeem us that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We're no longer, as it were, uh, 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 under this governor, under this tutor, under this bondage. But now the Son has come, and the Son who has come to redeem us from the law hath sent forth the Spirit into our hearts. The Bible says in verse number 6, crying, Abba, Father. We are, through the indwelling Spirit that cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father, this is evidence that we are sons and not slaves. That's the new relationship. This gospel that they're preaching, and by the way, Paul would say in chapter number one that it's not another gospel. It's not another gospel. It's a perversion of the true gospel. There is only one gospel, there is only one message. 
There's only one story. And I'm going to tell you, I've been in the ministry. I know this ain't been as long as some of you, but it's maybe a little bit longer than others. I've been in the ministry now 23 years, and I've heard about every way imaginable for a sinner to get saved. I've heard them tell them in the altar, hold on. And then I've heard them tell them in another altar, let go. I, I, I've witnessed people stand there. I'm not being, I'm just telling you what I've observed and what I've seen and what troubles me. I've, some, I've heard some say, well, the work has begun. Who knows when it will conclude? But I love what Brother Larry Winkler, when I was just a young man, hearing some of those influences, Brother Larry Winkler come down into our area and was preaching the glorious gospel of the grace of God by, by grace through faith. And Brother Larry Winkler one night said, he said, salvation occurs so fast that you can only speak about it in the past tense. You never will find somebody that says, I am being saved. The work begins by the Spirit and is concluded by the Spirit and the sinner comes to the recognition that they are not being saved but that they are saved. Born again by the Spirit of God. There is only one gospel that saves and that one gospel that saves is that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon Christ and you will be saved. And this gospel, this glorious message of salvation by grace has changed the dynamic that we have in terms of our relationship with God. We are no longer, look at what he says in verse number 7, wherefore thou art no. You know, Paul is a masterful preacher. Brethren, study Paul sometimes and his preaching. Paul has exegeted the scriptures Paul has faithfully went back into the Old Testament and drew out, just like Nehemiah said, they gave the text and they gave the sense of the text. Paul has given in chapter number 3 exactly what Abraham's story means. He has given given us in chapter number 3 exactly what the story of Sarah and Hagar means. He has exegeted the Scriptures and now he comes into chapter number 4 not with just some dry exegesis but with an application that will change their life. And in verse number 7 this is the application. You are no longer a servant but you're a son. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son then an heir of God through Christ. And Paul is fearful that his hearers, that these folks, listen to me, will not live in the liberty of sonship. Look at what he says in verse number 9. Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. I'm afraid that after you have heard the glorious gospel of the Son of God, which he himself said, the Son of God himself said, that ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. A little bit later on in that same discourse, he said, Whom the Son makes free is free indeed. 
now. You're changing that liberty, that freedom. You're wanting to exchange that liberty and that freedom to go back into a system that does nothing but bring bondage and slavery to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. I would, Galatian believers, I would to these that are here today that we would learn from which we've been delivered and unto which we've been saved. We have not been saved to be slaves, but we have been saved to be free-born children of the Most High God. Heirs that are given their wealth and their riches not because they've obtained it by their own efforts, but by a gift of their gracious Father. (laughs) Am I the only one that sees people struggling underneath the burden? Struggling underneath the weight of trying to obtain and earn and merit favor with God. If I go to church enough, I've got nothing against going to church, beloved. Y'all know that. I've got nothing against faithful attendance. I agree with what Brother Goodson said. It's a sin to forsake the assembly. It's a sin to not assemble with the people of God. But oh, beloved, we do not assemble together as slaves trying to please a master, but as sons who are reveling in the love of their father (laughs) we're not marching to obtain we are marching because we have obtained I'm afraid that you're going to miss the dynamics of the relationship that you have with God your relationship is not a slave you are a son Secondly, he's fearful that his labor will be in vain because the people do not understand the dynamics of their new reality. Look at this. I think it's expressed in verse number 9. I love this language. Oh, I have laid for the last few weeks in verse number 9 and soaked in it. Look at what he says. But now... How be it then, back to verse number 8, how be it then, with everything that's been proven, with everything that's been brought forth, how be it then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods, but now, after that ye have known God. And then there's an inspired, what I call an inspired, hold on just a minute. Now after that you have known God, Paul theologically corrects himself and says, not only do you know God, but look at it in verse number 9, now rather you are known of God. This knowing language is intimate language. It's relational language. Paul says, now you've been brought into a relationship with God. Oh, but by the way, it's not that you stumbled into this relationship. It's not that you were digging through the darkness and found this relationship. The reality is that before you could ever say, I know God, God knew you. This is adoptive language. This is language like what Paul uses in Romans chapter number 8. This is language that that Paul uses in that wonderful 
unbroken chain of redemption that's spelled out for us in Romans chapter number 8. You are known by God. You have been adopted. My wife and I have adopted one and we're in the process of adopting two more. And uh, during all of that, we have talked with folks and I won't never forget Brother Dagenhart last year we went to the greatest restaurant on the face of the earth, top of the river in Gunnersville, Alabama. And we gathered there in the upper chamber, <laughs> the top of the river, and we celebrated the adoption of our daughter. That little girl that was brought by God's providence into our life, we weren't looking for another child. My wife and I have been married for 17 years, and for the first seven years, we struggled to have children. Finally, in our seventh year, the Lord gave us our son, and we were content with that. But through God's providence, circumstance brought this little baby girl into our life. She was two weeks old when we met her. She was in the NICU. She was born early and addicted to drugs at 28 weeks. And uh, my wife, for 62 days straight, while I went to work and pastored and preached, my wife went every day to that NICU and through one of those little incubation chambers would reach her hands in there and touch that child who was not ours according to the flesh. People would make a... I think they were trying to make us feel better. And uh, they would say, boy, she looks just like you, Brother Chris. I said, no, she don't. None of my genetics are in that young lady. I said, you don't have to make us feel better. I know what they were trying to do, but I said, she's not ours according to the flesh. What little bit she may look like me is just because she's pudgy. <laughs> she had big cheeks after we got her. We started feeding her good, you know. But through the legal process, we adopted her. We chose her. I sat down with my son and I was trying to explain to him the adoption. I said, son, it's rooted in Scripture. I said, we chose her. She didn't choose us. We chose her. And we have brought her into the family. And now through a legal decree, I said, I might could forsake you, son. I might could cut you out of the will. I said, I won't, but I might could. But because we've went through the legal process... And I've put my name on her and it's stamped, signed, sealed, delivered. She's mine and nothing and nobody can ever do anything about it. I can't even disown her. Because I willfully, through a, through a proper and conscious choice, I chose her to bring her into my family. I knew her. I knew her circumstances. I knew where she's from. I know her family. I know their background. I know their history. I know her mother has four children in the system and she's not been a mother to any of them. I know the background, her family, everything about her. But in spite of knowing everything about her, I chose her and brought her into my family. Paul said, that's what's happened for you. He knew you. This will help some folks. That's why Paul is saying, I'm afraid you're not going to get this. 
The reality is, before you ever knew anything about God, He knew you. <laughs> oh. He predestined you. He called you. Amen? He knew you. He knew exactly where you was at. He came to where you were and called you by the, by the call of the gospel. And the Spirit's work did a special work of grace in your heart whereby the Spirit called you unto God Himself and He justified you without any promise that you would resolve and do better before you had ever done good or evil. God chose you and called you unto Himself and justified you when Christ died at Calvary. And based on all that, bless your heart, He will glorify you one of these days. You are known of God. I want you to live in that reality. And I'm afraid that you're going to miss the wonderful work of grace that God has done in your heart. As I read this, man, I, I just, I don't know if it was because I've reading through the book of Exodus, what, but there's just a lot of Exodus language here, is there not? Here's a people that have been purchased and redeemed by blood and by power have been brought out through a great demonstration of the hand of God. Don't never forget Miss Georgie Jones in my home, home church. 97 years old when she died. And a lot of the men in the community had went off in World War II. And Miss Jones was very educated, very intelligent. Very intelligent. And during that time, she would teach... Now, I know some folks will say that's not proper order, but they did what they had to do. And she'd teach there at the church in between Sundays that the preacher would come. They had a preacher that would come through back there in the backwoods next to the Paint Rock River, come through there once a month. And the other times, Miss Georgie would teach while the men were off at war. I don't never forget one of the last services she was able to be in. She grabbed the front of the pew like that and pulled herself up. And she said, Pastor, might I say a word? He said, you go ahead. This is what she said. She said, I'm so sick and tired of these preachers today trying to act like salvation is some kind of scientific process. This is what she said. It's a blooming miracle. It's a blooming miracle. The greatest demonstration of God's power that's going on in this world today is when some new born child of God cries out that they've been delivered that they know God and are known of God and God says I never want you to forget the reality of that and live in the spectacle of your redemption and the miracle that is the new birth here they are they've been brought out by blood and by power what do they do? Desire to go back. Paul says, I'm afraid. For you. Lastly, and I'm closing. Verse number 10. Not only will a minister feel like his labor is in vain if the people don't realize the dynamics of their new relationship. The dynamics of their new reality that they know God and are known of God. 
But lastly, a minister will feel like his work is in vain if the people are shallow in that to which they give reverence. Look at it in verse number 10. Ye observe. The word means to watch carefully. Attend with the eyes. You observe. Not an old rugged cross. You observe. You give attention to. You worship. You give reverence. Not to the grace of God in the gospel. Not to the glories of the eternal plan of salvation that God has condescended to reveal to us in the scriptures. No, you observe days. You observe months. You observe times and you observe seasons. Paul is afraid that after everything he's preached and everything he's uh, that, that, that they've believed and everything that he's proclaimed and the glory of this gospel that he has preached to them in power, in demonstration of the Spirit of God. He is afraid that all they can do and all that they can observe is that which is shallow, without substance, living in the tops and not living and worshiping in the reality of it. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. We've all observed shallow worship, have we not? You think to yourself, man, with the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what stirs them up? I was in a meeting one time. Brother Doug Bearden preached. Wonderful. I still think about it all the time. Wonderful. Wonderful sermon on the sufferings of Christ. My wife was sitting beside me and I was weeping. And I looked over to her and I said, it's almost like I can hear the hammer hit the nail. Ringing out and echoing through the hills of Jerusalem. It was so real. So real. The Spirit of God just attended to that particular message. And made the sufferings of Christ real. And caused me to want to worship the Lord. Next man got up. You could argue. I'm not belittling nobody. I'm just illustrating a point. Some of the things might be needful. Some things probably did need to be said at some point. But what struck me was afterwards. This brother came up and I was still affected. Y'all ever been in a, heard a sermon like that that just, it, it, it just affected you? And it did for me days after. And I was still sitting there weeping. This brother come up and he said, uh, what would you think about that tonight? I, and immediately my comments went to, oh, that sermon that Brother Bearden preached. Oh, my goodness. Thank the Lord for that. Bless his name. Hallelujah. And this is what the brother said. He said, ah, it's pretty good. Put together well. I just thought it was a little bit dry. You observe days. Months. Now that other sermon that probably had a place at some point somewhere. You couldn't have held him in a 40 acre field. He was just shouting like crazy. But the sufferings of Christ were regarded as a little bit dry. You observe days, months, times, years. That's what drives your reverence. 
That's what pushes you in worship. Is those things that are shallow and without substance. Why observe that? When we don't have to live in the top, we can live in the fullness. We don't have to worship the shadow. We can worship in the substance and the reality of what Christ has done for us. May God help us. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. Seal your word up to our hearts, Lord. Help us to live in reality of the glorious gospel of the Son of God. What you've accomplished for us, what you've done for us. Father, I thank you for sending your son to die for a sinner like me. That when I was without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you for Brother Merritt. Please, Lord, give him and his church the desire of their heart from this meeting. May you be glorified. May your people be helped and encouraged. And all that you're pleased to do in us and through us and for us. We'll thank you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.